traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Wednesday, January 5th, and release to premium subscribers that same day without ads, announcements, or interruptions. If you're jealous of premium subscribers, don't be. You can easily join them. Simply visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. Prices start at $9.99 a month. If you sign up for the year, you get a free month. There are a whole host of benefits along with getting the regular episodes early and ad-free, including most notably the daily contrarian podcast and briefing that goes out by 7 a.m. every market morning. This is a comprehensive and contrarian take on the day's market activity, looking at things that are likely to move markets and ways one might want to position one's portfolio. So check it out, contrarianpod.substack.com, and sign up. Now, here is this week's episode. Enjoy. Barry Knapp of Ironside's Macroeconomics, welcome back to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. You were our original OG first ever guest on this podcast way back in early 2019. You have since come back several times. Very much enjoy these conversations. Thank you for coming on. Uh, you are an individual who doesn't need much introduction or really any introduction. We see you on CNBC and elsewhere. Your website, ironsidesmacro.substack.com. Is that right? Correct. And, um, but so I thought that rather than usually I start these things with some long winded intro and, and some kind of diatribe, but I thought with you, I would just keep things a little more open ended and ask you for your outlook for 2022, what the biggest issues are facing the economy, as you can see. Sure. So that title of my 2022 outlook note was Inflation Policy and Politics. I started out by taking looking at the summary of economic projections from the December 2020 FOMC meeting and comparing it to the December 21 mm. FOMC meeting. And the thing that was most stark from that was the inflation expectations. Mm. At that point, the 
that point, meaning late 2020, the Fed did not expect inflation to exceed their 2% target through the entire forecast period. Wow. One of our main themes back in late 2024, 2021 was reflation and this idea that the pandemic was an inflationary shock. We called mm-hmm. it a positive productivity shock and an inflationary shock and mm-hmm. expected it to exceed the Fed's target though not quite by the order of magnitude that it did do, right? So Mm. as the year went on, inflation became an increasingly important political issue. We can see that in polling, and we could even see that in in policy behavior, right? By the end of the year, you had um, Joe Manchin killing the Build Back Better plan. You had Powell's reappointment, which the Biden administration had no interest in doing, but wound up doing anyway because of the inflationary pressure. And you had the Biden administration swinging towards, gee, we actually need you, Fed, to do something about this because, you know, for all our rhetoric about price controls, you know, any anyone who's seeped in economics in that administration knows that that won't do a, a darn thing, right? So right. that was that's sort of a major theme throughout our report. But when you think about it from a markets and, and economy perspective, what to, to, to me is most telling was there's going to be a significant divergence between economic activity and market behavior through the first half of the year, at least. And the reason for that is a major change in the liquidity environment for the first half of 22, in particular, relative to the first half of 2021. So if you recall, the Fed was full on buying $120 billion of securities a month in 2021. But more importantly, something investors didn't expect, or there's two things they didn't expect. One was they didn't expect the Democrats to sweep Georgia and be able to float another $1.9 trillion in stimulus in March. At that point, there wasn't expectation for any additional stimulus after we had a bipartisan agreement in the omnibus spending bill at the end of 2020 and the end of the Trump administration. So that was unexpected. But what was also unexpected was the Treasury was carrying... $1.7 trillion in balances at the Fed and made a determination they were going to draw that down to something like $400 billion. Well, it wound up going all the way to $100 billion. So that injection of liquidity into the system, largely into the banking system, it initially went out via checks through that stimulus package, but then it went out directly into the banking system when they cut their issuance of treasury bills. So you had all the Fed purchases, you had the reinvestment of maturing securities, which is even larger. And I may come back to this issue, but if you look at mortgage-backed securities, for example, the Fed was buying 40 billion a month and reinvesting 50 to 60 billion a month. So that issue remains acute today as we consider the Fed sequencing of normalizing policy and whether they're gonna shrink their balance sheet. But we'll, we'll leave that aside and we'll just say, okay, So the Fed stopped, uh, the Treasury stopped issuing bills. This caused bank assets to surge, cash assets to surge from $1.1 trillion pre-pandemic to $3 trillion by August of this year. This is why you had that ferocious rally in the bond market in the second quarter of last year. And and much to the dismay of hedge funds and investors who watched rates reprice significantly higher in the first part of the year, when the Treasury borrowed $1.9 trillion, roughly, and then turn around, because all that money wound up in the banking system and turn around and 
reverse almost the entire rally in, in uh, rates, right? The, that injection of liquidity just created you know, massive amounts of speculation early in the year. It was the meme stocks and crypto. And then later it was the treasury market because the banking system had nothing to do with the money. So that was this fantastically liquid environment. Fast forward to today, that balance at the treasury is $100 billion. They need to build it back up to five to $600 billion. So they're going to increase bill issuance and drain liquidity from the banking system. And the Fed's going to stop the purchases, likely go to balance sheet contraction fairly quickly, start raising rates. So it's a decidedly different environment, which on the margin, you think, OK, we understand why that's likely negative for markets, but it's not so clear why it would be negative for the economy. And in fact, I, I would argue it's a net neutral, if not a positive for the economy. And yeah. here's my logic in that. The um, And this is a bit of a contrarian view, I suppose. Oh, good. But you know, part of the idea is I, I referenced earlier the fact that bank cash assets went from $1.1 trillion to $3 trillion. As we know, a large percentage of those are on deposit at the Fed in their reverse repo program, earning five basis points per year. That's a huge drag on bank profitability. Draining that liquidity is a plus for banks because they're bumping up against capital requirements, things like the supplementary leverage ratio that got so much discussion SLR is the acronym for that. Um, and so draining that liquidity will actually help bank profitability, which on the margin increases their marginal propensity to lend, makes the credit environment more favorable, and is a net plus for economic activity and for growth over time. Uh, capital formation, for example. Then if you consider the housing market, we have a similar dynamic in as much as those real interest rates, the 10-year real interest rate or the TIPS yield which is the non-inflationary component of yields, did not change through the entire year of 2021. It was negative 110 basis points roughly at the beginning of 21 and at the end of 21. So although the Fed was arguably trying to tighten policy, at least through communication strategy and starting the tapering process, that real interest rate, that benchmark that we use for equity risk premiums that investors borrow on, didn't change through the whole year. And it's at historically low accommodative levels, that has brought a fantastic number of financial buyers into the housing market. So first-time buyers in the existing home sales report for November were 26% of the total. That's down from 33% a year ago. So you're actually crowding out first-time buyers from the housing market. And that is important because a financial buyer you know, may do some things to the house they purchase. Um, a first-time buyer forming a new household is going to furnish the house. The multiplier on that is much higher than a financial buyer, and it has much bigger spill-on effects on economic activity. So from my perspective, the early stages of the Fed normalizing policy is removing the counterproductive, uh, overly accommodative policy and will not impair economic activity. Hmm. And in fact, economic activity could actually improve. Wow. Right? The mix of growth could shift from consumption to investment. And investment's much better for corporate profits, uh, much better for long-term productivity growth, non-inflationary growth. So, you know, when I look at what's likely to happen in the first half of the year, I see the Fed starting to normalize policy, this liquidity getting drained as a net positive for longer-term growth, for productivity, for capital formation, but going to be pretty difficult for markets. And so, 
that is a sort of a key theme in how I'm thinking about the beginning of the year. Okay, very interesting. So, so yeah, you have so you have this divergence from economy, and like you said, like the economy is generally healthy. And on the other hand, you have markets which are perhaps levered a bit and do for a, potentially do for a pullback. Although tech stocks have kind of are basically in a bear market. Some of these tech stocks. I mean, I just saw. Flash here, Kathy Woods, ARK, ARKK, just dropped below $89 a share. And uh, those stocks have been getting beat up. But uh, another thing here is the bond market, because as you remove this liquidity from the bond market, obviously bonds are going to drop. And we've seen that the last month or two already. Like the 10 year is now up to what, 1.6 something. The two year uh, yield has, has gone up a lot. Is that not a concern at all for you that, that what's, what's happening there? Well, it's it's a, it's a concern from a tactical perspective and from a market's perspective. Um, I, I have a, a couple of views that are, um, again, I think somewhat contrarian. One is that um, the terminal funds rate as priced by the market, if you look at a euro dollar curve or Fed funds curve or whatever, is actually below where the Fed thinks that they can uh, raise the policy rate to. I think it's it's more like double what the Fed thinks they can raise the policy rate too. And again, this is a bit of a contrarian view. You hear people like Mohammed Al-Aryan call this a highly leveraged economy. Right. And his view is that you'll raise rates and it'll choke off growth. Um, I, I strongly disagree with that and would go back and look at 2018 with a little more nuanced eye. So in 2018, um, we ultimately, we had slowing of housing activity in 2018. However, the slowing of housing activity in 2018 was not attributable to higher rates. It was attributable to tax reform. Hmm. And that tax reform, which raised the, the minimum standard deduction and capped the SALT tax, caused an almost identical decline in housing Very activity okay. as what happened in 1987 after the 86 tax reform, which had a very similar effect because you, you cut that top marginal tax rate. So the after-tax cost of mortgage went up decidedly, it caused a one-year slowing of housing activity, and then a reacceleration in 1988. And the same thing happened in 2019. So people look back at 18 and say, oh, no, if the Fed raises rates and starts shrinking their balance sheet, it's going to slow economic activity. And I disagree for, for that reason, but also because where who holds the debt or who the debtor is, rather, is incredibly important to whether it's inflationary or deflationary. After the global financial crisis, the household sector was the most indebted it had ever been in this country. That financial sector was the most leveraged it had ever been. You had um, supply and demand constraints on credit creation. That debt got transferred to the public sector, to the government. Well, now when you look at the various sectors of the economy, the household sector is under leveraged. The non-financial corporate sector is not over leveraged, um, despite all the charts you see periodically about how much corporate debt went up uh, relative to GDP, it barely moved during the whole last business cycle. And it sits at roughly 50% of GDP, a level no one would consider to be at a threshold that would choke off growth. Financial sector leverage is low. It's all at the government level. So government debt, excessive government debt is inflationary. Excessive private sector debt is deflationary. And that's a key point of differentiation that people like El Arian do not make. And mm. so again, what the government generally tries to do to deal with this debt is the first go around is try and raise taxes, 
that never works. Mm. And they try and inflate their way out of it through financial repression. That's the stage we're in right now. Yeah. And so that outlook means that the economy could actually sustain far more because the government just doesn't have the same threshold levels as the household sector and it doesn't cause the same deflationary dynamic. So, hmm. yeah, I definitely think rates are going up. I think interest rate volatility, which is another topic, is going to be structurally higher hmm. um, as the Fed winds down their balance sheet and um, uh, moves towards normalizing policy, also because fundamental Volatility in the, in the fixed income market is going to be higher because this is not a temporary transitory shock to inflation. Mm-hmm. There are, are reasons why we are going to be structurally higher through this business cycle that uh, I were already my views before the pandemic hit. The pandemic just accelerated the process. So there's a lot of reasons why bond volatility will be higher, why real rates will go up. But I think the economy can take it more than the back end of the market would now lead you to believe. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. Okay, so not, no concern then over inflation because... Again, inflation is running hot. You know, six percent CPI print year over year, and you know, wouldn't that come in and, and eventually kind of hurt consumers if they can't afford all this stuff uh, that they need and that they want? And yeah, the Fed is raising rates to combat that, but there's usually a lag before that kicks in. Uh, yeah, and I don't that? think the Fed will have the political will to ever to truly get it um, yeah. under control. So. I would not characterize my views on inflation as not a level of concern. Uh Um, The way I've structured my thought process around this um, is to go back and do some deep research about what happened when we moved from the disinflationary regime in the 1950s, which is very similar to the 2010s. We had very similar monetary policy. Uh, We'd had capped interest rates in the early, you know, through World War II into the early 50s. We had very tight bank regulatory, uh, very tight bank regulatory regime. We had very uneven growth, weak capital formation, all those things that were very similar to the 2010s. When JFK got elected in the early 1960s, he had a very, there was a very similar policy mix to the Biden administration, but expansive fiscal and monetary policy. Now, the Kennedy administration was more focused on initially the supply side of the economy and had tax cuts that were very similar to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2018. But then when LBJ came in and started in on Medicare reform and Medicaid reform, whatever you thought about those, and there was a very strong societal case for that. For example, 25% of the population over the age of 65 had health insurance in 1965. Right. So there was a there was a strong case to have uh, Medicare. However, when you look at the inflation dynamics post that, 
medical care inflation started to accelerate. And that's what really drove inflation in the late 60s and then into the 70s. And that's even with energy inflation in those days, which we're unlikely to have this go around. So you had this policy trade-off that started this inflation dynamic. Now, you hadn't had a shock like we had with the pandemic. But for me, when when, um, we were in that period from 1960 to 67, you went from 8% earnings growth to 15% earnings growth. You had faster nominal growth. You had operating leverage. When you consider the corporate sector, there's the marginal cost, marginal revenue argument, prices paid versus prices received that gets a lot of focus. You had a number of um, equity strategists get the market and earnings call wrong last year by focusing on that rather than operating leverage, which is your revenues go up, your fixed costs don't change, and you get this big operating leverage. And that's what drove um, profitability and margins to go to all-time highs during 2021. And I think we'll continue in 2022. But the real issue here is the threshold level that we hit in 1968 was a 4% trend rate of inflation. Now, I realize we're above that now. Uh, Goods prices are going to come down in 2022. There's not too much in the way of arguments about that. I think as goods inflation goes down, services inflation will come up. The only thing transitory about inflation was disinflation initially in housing, which is now reversing, disinflation in healthcare, which is still fairly low. It's at about 1.7%. And disinflation in education, which is also at 1.7%. These are sectors that ran much higher than that for decade after decade. Those will recover. So services inflation will settle in back at a higher level. It used to run at three or so percent in the nineties, uh, O's and tens. It'll probably be higher than that as a consequence of policy. Goods inflation is not going back to negative 1%. So we're gonna settle into a higher level. The question is, do we settle into a level below four or above four? Because four was the trigger point that really started to press valuations and make it dip- difficult for companies to pass through prices triggered inflationary expectations. For those listeners that haven't seen the Jeremy Rudd paper, he's a Fed staffer who wrote, why do we care about inflation expectations? It's worth reading. That's a fascinating argument. I'll we'll try to link he, to it, yeah. But he does say at the end of the paper, above four, all bets might be off. My words, not his. And so that to me is kind of the key trigger. If we're in a reflationary regime where we settle back in somewhere between three and four, which is my expectation, then the corporate sector can deal with it. The household sector can likely deal with it. We'll have faster wage growth. Real wages could be positive. But if we settle above four, if we've skipped straight to the 70s, and I wrote a report about that late in the year, straight to the 70s and the possibility that we go there, that we don't have this reflationary regime, then that would be obviously a very negative scenario for valuations, for um, getting into something of, of an inflationary spiral, a boom-bust cycle. I think the business cycle will extend through 2025. That long, we'll have huh? this okay. settling in of inflation to a much higher level than pre-pandemic, but not over that 4% threshold. That's How soon do you think it'll come down below 4%? Well, it, it, it won't in the first quarter because the mm, yeah. comps are really um, yeah. 
tough, right? So I, I don't want to get carried away with the base effects because I was making fun of them a year ago. Yeah, so, a lot of people know, In the second quarter, we'll settle below that. The question is, what does it look like? So one of the things I do to really try and gauge this is I've built a correlation matrix of the top 20 components of CPI. And uh, correlation was very low early in the year. Correlation is surging now, meaning all those prices are moving together. The same thing's going on in housing, by the way. If you take the 20 cities of the CoreLogic Index, it's at about 0.97%, much higher than it was in 05 or 06, right? Mm. So you've got all, you know, house prices moving up together. You've got all uh, a much greater correlation of all the components of CPI moving up. The question will be, as goods prices come down, what's the trend level for service sector inflation? And it's going to be mid-year before we know that, right? At least mid-year. Yeah. And, you know, so like the Fed tried to look through the second quarter last year because of base effects, when it surged, we'll be looking, we'll be doing the same thing in the second quarter this year saying, okay, can we look through this and what does the second half look like? And that's, again, my related to my idea that the first half of the year is going to be much more difficult for asset markets than the second half of the year when we start to get a better idea of what the trend rate is and whether we're going straight to the 70s or not. Can we talk about that a little more? I'm not sure I understood it. Apologies. But the so, yeah, why, why would asset prices have a hard time if the economy is in good shape for the first six months of the year? Because of the withdrawal of, of liquidity. Okay. And so if you, if you think about okay. the rates market in particular, for most of 2021, when we had periods when rates moved up, if the rate rise was being driven by inflation break-evens, uh, equities performed well, right? And it was this reflationary environment and it, companies you know, have fixed their fixed costs, stronger revenue growth meant stronger profit margins, operating leverage. If real rates started to move, that's a tightening of a real tightening of financial conditions and a risk-off scenario. Well, um, even in the last day or two, we've had some decent move in real rates, but as I said, they remain at historically low levels. So if you take that 10-year real rate from negative, where do I have it right now? Well, it's negative 91. It's been as low as negative 120, right? No, so no. even in the last uh, week or so, it's moved from negative 105, 106 to 90. It, going back to 2018, to use to illustrate the point, when the Fed was contracting their balance sheet, allowing the runoff, you had a, a sharp 30 basis point rise in 10-year real rates or tip shields in January. And then in February, we had Balmageddon. Yeah, Again, in right. September, we had a 30 basis point shock higher in real rates. And then we had the whole quantitative tightening, 20% equity market correction. So I'm not saying 30 basis points is necessarily the trigger in this env environment because the starting point is lower. Right. Nonetheless, if you see those real rates moving decidedly higher because the Fed is ending their purchases and then potentially going into balance sheet contraction, that will tighten financial conditions and um, equities, all assets, commodities, everything will struggle with that. Got it. Got it. Yeah. But what do you make of the argument? Like the earliest, you, you said uh, you compare it to 2018. Well, 2018 was the third year, I think, of Fed tightening. The early stages of Fed tightening are usually pretty good for risk assets. If you go back to 2016, 17, 2005, 6, and of course the late 90s, 
Um, so what do you think of that? Well, I think, I, I think that that's, that's right. I've spent a lot of time studying, um, uh, studying those, what I call fed policy normalization related shocks. And so mm-hmm. every business cycle since world war II had one of them after the global financial crisis, we had eight of them. <laughs> that was the end of QE one, end of QE two, end of operation twist, the taper tantrum, the end of zero interest rate, the end of the taper, the end uh, zero interest rate, so on and so forth. So given the magnitude of the policy accommodation that each of these little steps that the Fed takes, and it appears they're going to take it much quicker and they're not going to go back the way they did in 2010. In large part, and this is an important and subtle point, I believe that the strike on the Fed put is much, much lower than it was in 2009 and 11, so on and so forth. And here's one way to think about that. In 2007, household net worth peaked at, I believe the number was $70.7 trillion. By the first quarter of 2009, that had fallen to $59 trillion. It took until 2012, late mid to late 2012, to regain that hit to household wealth. Well, this go around, household net worth was $117 trillion at the beginning of 2020. It fell to 111 by the end of the first quarter. It was right back above that. And it now currently sits at $145 trillion. Okay. So the Fed had to cushion, they needed this yeah, wealth so. effect to cushion household balance sheet damage, which was highly leveraged People were underwater on their mortgages. People had lost a lot of money on their on their equity portfolios. None of those things are true today. The Fed does not need to offer that cushion, nor are they in the same environment. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, the uh, pandemic was an inflationary shock. The global financial crisis was a deflationary shock. So those two things combined mean that the Fed is less likely to go back and have to try and cushion a 10% decline in markets. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Nonetheless, as we reach each of these little steps, it's likely we get these uncertainty shocks. The way I would think about the first half of the year, if I were being a little bit tactical or maybe a little bit over, overly tactical, I think Joe Lavornia once called this cutting the baloney a little too thin, right? But the idea I would, I, the way I would think about the first half of the year is earnings seasons will be good for equity markets because of this operating leverage argument I'm making. But when we get around Fed meetings and these inflection points like the March meeting, for example, when they could very well start the rate hike uh, cycle and talk about balance sheet contraction, all these little Fed policy events could be shocks that, you know, could run as, as big as eight to 10%, um, which is the historic reaction to these inflection points in Fed policy. A couple of other um, key points, I, I think, are important points. One is there's, there, you know, there are those out there that are prone to Keynesian economic thought that um, believe we're going off something of a, a fiscal cliff here and the collapse of the Build Back Better plan is 
problematic for the markets. We had a one-day sell-off that they called the mansion meltdown. Um, the collapse of the Build Back Better plan is very good news for equity investors, and it's very good news for the longer-run outlook for the U.S. economy in as much as we have a very compelling case to rebuild our capital stock in this country, right? We were already going through deglobalization. If you look at the ratio of global trade to global industrial production, it shrank considerably in the 2010s. We had wrung all of the benefits out of globalization. It was pressure. You've had a series of supply chain shocks. The granddaddy, the Trump trade war was one of them, but the granddaddy of them all was the global financial crisis and, uh, excuse me, the pandemic. And um, the reaction, the policy reaction to that in Asia, which continues to this day, which is zero COVID policy and shutting down um, ports and the like. So we're going to re start rebuilding our capital stock. We need, obviously, a much stronger capital investment cycle. The means are there. You know, corporate profitability is really high. The just economic justification is there. Uh, the last thing that really needed to be done to make the U.S. a competitive destination for global capital was to cut our corporate tax rates. We were the least competitive in OECD. The Biden tax plan would have taken us back to the bottom of the pack. So collapse of BBB is very good news from uh, from a capital investment perspective, capital deepening. This could be a major offset to inflation over time. Mm -hmm. So that was a net plus for the economy. But whatever, the, the real the real point there, though, was that um, the Build Back Better plan was paying for social spending with higher corporate taxes. That was not going to help our capital formation. So whatever you think about the societal benefits of it, like my earlier example of Medicare, it was not going to be a net plus for capital formation and for the corporate sector and for an investor in equities. So yeah, yeah. Um, that is a, that is a key it. point. And then the final point I would make about that, when you look at the mix of growth, for 2022, I believe we'll have greater investment relative to consumption. I've heard others say that, well, services consumption is not as good for corporate profits as goods consumption, and, and that mix could shift. That's sort of true, except for the fact that goods consumption has been held back by capacity constraints. Auto sales, for example, are running less than a 13 million annualized selling rate. It should be probably more like 18. So. Mm. You know, you can't really argue that we're going to have a big hit to consumption uh, and a big shift from goods to services. Furthermore, if I'm right about CapEx and all the indicators that I look at about CapEx are, are surging, investment is better than consumption for the growth outlook. We're likely to have less drag from net exports um, because global trade growth is going to slow. By the way, that's related to my very bearish view on China. Mm. Um, and then... Um, um, you're likely to have inventory rebuilding. The only piece of growth that's likely to be a major drag is government spending, which is probably the least impactful for the corporate sector and for corporate earnings next year. So, mm. you know, again, I think the economic outlook is, is, is really actually pretty good. Again, though, with this liquidity dynamic changing, it, it'll be tough to tell that because the rate of change of growth will slow in the first half of the year. And the markets won't be clear where we're going to settle in at. And that's hmm. that's what creates that um, you know, uncertainty that makes things a little trickier for the first half of the year. But I do now have to ask you before I let you go about China. Uh, what's your, your bearish view there? If you can go through that real quick. Yeah. So 
almost everything that China did in response to the pandemic was to move away from economic dynamism uh, towards greater state control over the means of resources. Mm -hmm. And that greater control, those, if you look at from state-owned enterprises versus productivity from the private sector, China's productivity, by the way, is in the bottom quadrant um, and the U.S. is in the upper right and China's in the lower left. Hmm. So their productivity, their technology innovation adoption is really low. You hear from technologists, even guys like Page, who used to be at Google, well, China's ahead of us on AI, things like this. The integration of technology into the way China does business is so low and so antiquated in particular because of the dominance of state-owned enterprises, which has taken on an even greater role with Xi wanting even greater control ahead of the next party Congress, that, and presuming he gets reappointed as general secretariat for life, you can't see that changing anytime soon. But from a catalyst, you know, near-term catalyst perspective, I expected that global trade growth would slow somewhere around the third end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter. It hasn't as of yet, in part because of, you know, the, the variants and the zero COVID policies that have kept this going. But global trade growth will slow. Supply chains will clear. When that happens, that's going to leave the mercantilists, China, Germany, Japan, South Korea, in a very precarious position. My expectation is the first mover to de-emphasize an export-dependent business model or economic model is going to be Germany. And that in mm -hmm. particular is because Merkel's now gone. Germany mm -hmm. did this in the early 2000s. The Schroeder labor reforms allowed them to compete in global trade in the globalization era. They'll now be likely willing to go the other way. China's not going to change. And so China's going to really struggle. And if you think about their currency in particular, they were comfortable with their currency strengthening throughout 2021 for two reasons. One is, you know, global trade growth was really strong and they weren't really worried about um, global trade competitiveness. People can't restructure supply chains that easily, but also the crackdown on the tech sector meant that they had outflow problems. Well, in 2022, global trade growth is going to slow, which is going to put downward pressure on the currency. And those uh, outflow pressures are likely to resume. Mm -hmm. And this will create tight, tighter financial conditions in China. Now, the contra argument to what I'm saying is, well, China's just going to ease policy. There's no market mechanism in China, no banking mechanism, you know, injecting more liquidity to state-owned enterprise, big banks to loan money to the private sector. They don't loan money to the private sector. They loan money to SOEs. So that'll just exacerbate their whole productivity efficiency problem. Mm -hmm. So I see this as being a very difficult environment for China. As I said, global trade growth was already slowing in the 2010s. It's going to slow very fast in the 2020s. Deglobalization is going to take on a real urgency, and mm -hmm. that's going to leave China's export dependency, that big export channel, um, in a very precarious spot. Very interesting. Yeah. And don't forget, also, you have domestic issues there with real estate market and other things. Um, that that are are not great for the country either. Barry Knapp, Ironsides Macroeconomics. Thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. In conclusion, maybe if you could just remind our listeners where they can find out more about you. I'll put all this in the show notes as well. Great. Um, 
the Ironsides Macro website is uh, ironsidesmacro.substack.com. Uh, if you're a wealth advisor, um, large individual investor, you want to read the research, you can go find it. <clears throat> you can go find it there. Um, I have institutional investors that have onboarded me to the research platform like they did when I was at Guggenheim or Barclays. I also have an affiliate relationship with Macro Risk Advisors, a very uh, dynamic equity derivative base uh, broker dealer in New York. Dean Kernett was a former colleague of mine when I was in equity derivatives back at Lehman Brothers. So if you're the type of investor that still pays for research with commissions, you could look into my relationship with Macro Risk Advisors as well. So um, very cool. And now you're going to have follow a, me on Twitter at, at yeah. Barry Knapp. Or, you know, I'm as I do, yeah. And you're going to have a new a new offering here for retail investors soon, right? But that's, I, I I am. I have a, a podcast that uh, that goes out on uh, on Monday mornings, and um, I'm going to make some significant enhancements to that podcast. Do some period periodic interviews with former colleagues and all myself, and I will charge a a uh, likely charge a minimum price for the premium product on that one. So that's uh, very cool. A new endeavor for uh, for 2022. Maybe I can give my subscribers a disc, a small discount in exchange you for can, I, yeah. I think that's a good idea. I'm willing yeah. to do that. Yeah, sure. let's talk about that offline. Cool. Awesome. Very nice. Barry Knapp, thank you for coming. Thank you all for listening and look forward to speaking to you again next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.